One of the things that uh, we've been doing this last few couple of weeks is answering questions. There was one that came up that I thought was really applicable to just right now. And so I wanted to handle that, that question. Uh, you know that we're, these are questions that were submitted by you and other people like you that go to Charter Oak Church. Um, and that question was, does Jesus ever get sick of hearing from me? Does Jesus ever, or God, ever get tired of hearing from me? And so I just wanted to take this time right now and answer that. No. <laughs> so, end of question. No, I, it's, it's, it's a common question. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. We live in a broken world, and we cry out to God all the time for things that we need and want to see happen. And so I guess it's kind of natural for us to, to, to wonder, does he get tired of hearing from us? Um. Jesus addressed this uh, pretty, pretty clearly in a story, a parable he told in Luke 18. We're not going to like, put that up on the, on the screen or anything. <clears throat> but basically, <clears throat> it's a story of a, of a judge who is not a good person. And this woman is trying to get justice. And so she keeps going to this judge. He keeps refusing the woman. She keeps coming back over and over and over again with great persistence. And the judge eventually just like, ah, fine. You know, I'm going to grant what you want because he's sick of hearing from you. He's just tired. He got worn down. So the question here on this parable is, is, is God that judge in this story? Um, <clears throat> does he only answer prayers when we wear him down? And he's just like, fine, leave me alone, I'll do it. Jesus just says, no, that's, that's not, God. Does, the judge does not represent God. The point of the story is, if earthly judges who are human can finally and, and, and eventually give us what we ask, how much more will your loving father do that? How much more would God, who loves you, who, whose children we are, how much more will he give us what we ask? There's other scriptures I just want to, I want to look at just really quick. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Jesus speaking, saying, ask and it will be given to you. And we're outright told to ask. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, the next three verses after that, he says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And this goes right along with that story in Luke 18. If we know how to give good gifts to our children because we love them, how much more is God ready and willing and able to give us good gifts as his children? He never gets tired of hearing from us. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are to pray. God wants us to pray to him. It's our lifeline to God. 
It really is. God has given us that and wants us to use that. It's our lifeline. So don't be afraid to ask things of him. Also, don't be afraid to do more in prayer than just ask. I just might add, don't forget to praise him. Don't forget to thank him. Don't forget to confess your sins to him. Don't forget to pray for others and pray for others' salvation. Do all of these things. And then don't forget to listen. Right? That's the part that I skip the most, is just being quiet and listening for him to speak. There's really no greater calling than to be used by God to reach this world. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we're saved. It's not just what they refer to as fire insurance. It's not just to save ourselves from hell. It's not just to avoid eternal separation from God, which is awesome, but the job's not done. We're still here on earth because there's things to do. And it's a lesson I have to learn. I have to remind myself over and over again. It's not about me. I'm here. I'm saved. I'm a child of God to serve God however he calls me to, be, to serve him. So I love seeing that video and just seeing what he did and how, you know, I just, oh, no, our drugs were taken. Oh, no, the roads are closed. There's protests. And yet God said, you know what? I can work with this. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I think it's just amazing. So we are in this series um, that I, I talked about. Um, we're dealing with questions that you, the people of Turtle Church, have asked us. Uh, we got them online. We got them from the other campuses. We put them all together. We kind of divided them up into buckets, subject matter. Uh, today we're going to be covering God's nature and his word, and um, we're going to try and answer from a biblical perspective. That's where we always go at Charlotte Church. That's what we strive to do, is to see what the Bible says about each of these questions. If it answers it directly, hey, so much the better. But sometimes maybe we have to use principles that the Bible puts forth and, and apply them in ways they weren't applied in the Bible, and just kind of discern how that shapes our answer to these questions. So at Charlotte Church, we have eight essential beliefs. They deal with sin and marriage and uh, the sanctity of life and God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And you can go on our website anytime you want and see our eight essential beliefs. And, and if this falls into one of those, we stand firm on those at Charlotte Church. But there are so many things that are what the Bible would refer to as disputable things, Romans 14, or non-essential items, that God-fearing, loyal, devoted Christians differ on. If we sat down around a table and started discussing topics, we'd probably find some areas that we, we, don't, we, we disagree on. But if they're not the essential beliefs, it's okay. As long as those things are informed, by our understanding of the Bible, and it's not condemned there, um, we're free to believe as we want to in those areas. So some of these things may fall into that category. In fact, <laughs> the things that divide us the most, the things that cause other denominations, the things that cause us to not want to worship with each other are all disputable items. They're all non-essentials. There aren't any Christian churches out there really, well, <laughs> 
good Christian churches out there who are not saying, you know what, Jesus wasn't the Son of God. You know, they're, they're not doing that. They're saying, here's what we believe about eternal security, or here's what we believe about premillennialism or postmillennialism, or here's what we believe baptism is. Okay, so we take a firm stand on the things that matter, and we allow freedom in the things that are disputable or not essential. And we always, always, always relate to each other in a loving way. That's just the way that we attack these things. Uh, it's hard. Something built into us makes us want to make other people agree. <laughs> it's like, that's, I really want you to agree with me. And that can cause division. We have to let go of that. And we have to let go of that. So the first question I wanted, I wanted to handle today uh, is one that we got. It is, does God ever change his mind? Does God ever change his mind? It's a great question, and it relates to what we talked about uh, before in prayer, because if you think about it, if we can go to God in prayer, and if we can pray for something to happen or not to happen, and that happens, God does what we pray for, did God not change his mind at that point to make that happen or to stop that from happening? You know, I can pray that something will not happen and maybe God grants that. Or I can pray for, for maybe for someone to be healed and they're healed. And maybe they wouldn't have been if I hadn't prayed. So did God change his mind in that situation? So let's go to God, God's word, and let's get clarity on that. And fortunately, <laughs> this is a question that is answered outright in Scripture. Okay, if we look at what the prophet Samuel told King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 29. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Saul writes, He who is the glory of Israel, that is God, does not lie or change his mind. For he is a, he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Human beings, imperfect beings, change their minds. God is not that, or to, or that he would need to change his mind. And likewise, I want to look at Hebrews 13, 8, where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our unchanging God is not a human being that he should change his mind. So for all time, for all time, God does not change his mind. So let's go back to prayer now. Does that cause God to change course? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening here. Our prayers, now hear me, our prayers absolutely do bring about something that may not have been going to happen otherwise. I, 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 so how do I say that and then say he doesn't change his mind? We'll get there. I do believe our prayers absolutely do bring about things that were not going to happen otherwise. But that isn't God changing his mind. That is God responding to his children who are praying according to his will. That's God responding to his children who are praying according to his will. In fact, God won't answer any request that would require him to change his mind. He doesn't need to. He is not a human being that he would need to change his mind. One time Jesus healed a man born blind, and the man said this about prayer in John 9, 31. He said, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. This is a child of God praying according to God's will. So, for example, 
if I were to go to God in prayer and ask God to, to hinder Ken Eicher's discipleship and to, and to make him less mature in, in Jesus, he's not going to do that. And I'm not going to pray that because I'm a child of God. I want to pray in his will. I know it's God's will that Ken grow in the Lord. I'm not going to pray that. If I ask God to send an earthquake to wipe out an orphanage, he's not going to do that, and I'm not going to pray that. If I ask God to let me win the lottery and, and buy a mansion and live in luxury for the rest of my life, I'm not going to ask for that, but if he grants it, I'll humbly accept it. <laughs> you know, but, but seriously, do you see what I'm saying here? God grants prayer from a child of God who is asking according to his will. When our mind is his mind, our prayers are heard and are answered as we ask. So does he change his mind? No, he does not. He answers children of God praying in God's will. But I have a follow-up question for us all, for me. Do you, do I change my mind? Do you change your mind? As followers of Jesus, it's essential that we change our minds mm -hmm. so that they are the mind of God. You see? So in Romans 12, 2, this famous passage, and it says exactly that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? That's, that's that. Then you will be able to test and prove. Is that me moving? Oh, thank you. Okay. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When our minds become his mind, then we'll be able to test and approve God's will. That's what we're striving for. So God doesn't change his mind. But fallen, sinful, broken human beings like you and me, we are called by God to change our mind to match his. And then when we pray in the will of God, God answers. God answers. So the next question. Why did God create earth and people? Why did God create earth and people? Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great question. Remember at one point uh, in, uh, in history, he wiped out all of humanity. He, he went... He, uh, because of the poor choices that humanity made, he flooded the world to get rid of sin. He made a covenant that he'd never do that again, and I am so glad, because our world today is no better than the world was at that time. It's no better than it was at that time. If, if he hadn't made that covenant, we What am I doing here? I, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I should use a different mic. You want me to? Okay. Let me grab that handheld. Check, check. Okay. If he hadn't made that covenant back then to never flood the earth again, I think he'd be having flood after flood after flood. That's just what I'm thinking. I think he'd look at America right now and go, flood. You know, I think it would just be that way. So why did he create? Why did he create us? Before we continue, let me just say something to caution us all, and this is a good thing to keep in mind throughout this series as we wrestle with these questions. There is no way that we can know exactly why God did everything God did. Yeah. There's just no way. 
we don't have his mind in the sense of, of, of knowing and, and, and being all that he is, and we cannot know why God did everything he did. But using that as an excuse not to try is also lazy, Come on. right? So let's try. Let's try and understand what God did, what, is, did, what he did. <clears throat> I mean, we look at Isaiah 50, 55, 9. It says, as the high heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God's ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That will always be true. That will always be true. So let's stumble along and see what we can learn about this. Why did he create? Let's tackle something easier first. God didn't create because he needed to. Come on. God didn't create because he needed to. God doesn't need anything. Yep. <clears throat> he doesn't need anything. Paul once said to the people in Athens here in Acts 17, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So God doesn't need anything. He's the giver of all things. So he didn't make us because he needed us. He didn't need the grieving that that would require of him by needing us. He didn't need companionship from us either. God has always been in companionship. God has always been in companionship. Long before humans, before animals, carbon-based life forms, before light and darkness, and before time began, God existed, but he never existed alone. If we look at Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, God created, and the Spirit of God was there. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Mm -hmm. Now, the theology of the Trinity is hard to grasp with this one God existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But before time began, he existed that way, and he had companionship. The analogy I always used to think about it, and it's not perfect. It, it, there's, I don't think there is any perfect one, but is is water which exists as steam, liquid, and solid, okay? Three different forms, one substance, but that's still not perfect when trying to describe the Trinity. But God has always had this, this relationship. So why did he create us? I don't think it's a question of need. I think it's a question of want. Mm -hmm. It's a question of want. Colossians 1.16 says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And for him. We were created for his pleasure. Not for his entertainment. I don't think he would find us very entertaining right now, but he created us for his pleasure. And we know that. And we know that he wants us because of the stories that Jesus told in parables in Luke 15. And I just want to hit the, the high points of each one of those. Luke 15, 4. 
What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then Luke 8. Or what woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep her house, and search carefully until she finds it? And then finally, Luke 15, 20. But while the disobedient son was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Jesus is revealing how God feels about us. He wants us. He wants us. We weren't created because he needed to for some reason. It's, it's better than that. We're here because God wants us. And even more than that, he's desperate for us. He's desperate to, to, to rekindle that, that, that relationship that we had with him in the Garden of Eden. So when there's a lost sheep, a lost coin, a, a lost son, he searches diligently and is overjoyed when he finds him. And I know it's true that God wants us because God sent his son to die on Calvary's hill for us. Mm -hmm. Amen. So he created us because he wants us. And that just makes my heart want to make him glad he did. <laughs> I hope that's the same for you. Um, so I want to finish up today with one other question. This is a tough one. Um, it depends on where you're coming from when you ask it. How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Bible is true? In every message we preach in Charter Road Church, we go to the Bible. We use the Bible for that. We want to be grounded in the Bible. I don't want to be grounded in my opinion or in your opinion. We, we want to be grounded in what the Bible says. How do we know it's true? Here's what we believe about the Bible at Charter Road Church. This is one of our eight essential beliefs. The Bible is God's word to us. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is inspired by God, it is the truth without error. So again, you can find those essential beliefs on our website if you want to do that. So why do we believe this? Well, both Peter and Paul in the Bible helped to establish this in what they wrote. Peter was, was one of the first disciples. He was with Jesus, walked with Jesus on the earth. He knew him very well, and Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. He said, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that is how we have the word of God today. And then there's Paul, one of the, the first and the greatest missionary ever, an apostle, and an apostle by virtue of the fact that he had a meeting with Jesus on that, on that road. And he wrote this to his protege, Timothy. He wrote in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the Bible upholds the Bible, but if you're a skeptic, using the Bible to prove the Bible is not exactly a great proof. Um, so let's talk about the Bible a little bit. Unlike most world religions, the Bible is not one book written by one person. 
Okay, it is actually 66 books written by dozens of authors from three different continents over the course of a thousand years. And yet the message is cohesive. And yet the message builds upon itself. And yet the message is upheld through all of that. That diversity in thought, that diversity in experience and time, all coming together in cohesiveness is itself a pretty strong argument for the validity of the Bible. It's a pretty strong argument. Because if the Bible is false or made up, it represents the biggest conspiracy or delusion in human history. It would have to be somebody intentionally pulling together books, I don't know, that are just close enough to, to seem okay, but then to delude us. And to what end? You know, I don't know what the, what the motivation of that would be. It would be the greatest delusion, the greatest conspiracy in all of human history if it's not true. But granted, it's hard to believe. Billions of people don't believe it. It's, it's fantastic. It's supernatural. It's phenomenal. The most extraordinary part of the Bible is God came to earth in human form. Fully God, fully human. To offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sin of all people for all time. No other religion has this, has this, this import that God actually came down to the people. That God became human. That God took on our sin for us. No other religion has that. Christ died. Christ is risen. Christ will rise again. That message. So that causes a lot of people to wonder if it's true, but it all hinges on Jesus. If Jesus is not who he says he is, he's just a good teacher or a prophet or a lunatic or whatever you want to say, then we can all just go home. There's no point in being here. So let's focus on the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus, since it hinges on that, really. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Can we disprove the events in the Gospels? Can we do that? Can we disprove the death and resurrection of Jesus? Now, the Roman Empire was the greatest, most powerful organization on the earth, and they tried to. They used all their unlimited resources to either disprove or suppress that message, to spread, to spread rumors that Jesus' body was stolen. Somehow they tried that, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't suppress it. So let's think this through just a little bit. First of all, Jesus is either speaking the truth, or he's a liar, or he's deluded. If he's a liar, he's an idiot, because everything he said put him on the cross. If he's deluded, then the people who walked with him day in and day out would know. So my conclusion is that Jesus was speaking truth about who he was and why he was here. Let's think about the apostles. The apostles would have no earthly need to go forth and spread the word of God if they believed Jesus to be lying or a lunatic because that path for them also led to torture and jail and death. So these apostles, these, these disciples who walked with Jesus for three years on earth, who were taught specifically by Jesus after Pentecost, 
were filled with the Holy Spirit and went forth and in, in the face of, of authority saying, be quiet or, or be, be lashed or, or, or be crucified or be sawn in two or whatever it might be. In the face of that, you must stop. And they didn't. And they didn't to, to our benefit. We're here today because they didn't. We're here today because they were faithful to that. Why would they do that if there was any doubt to the validity of Jesus' words, to the validity of who he said he was? They knew the danger. They knew what it would do to the, to the current status quo, to the powers that be. And yet they did that. In the face of persecution and death, their cause was more important. It's like Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He quoted it often. He believed it was true. So by his words, he upholds the Old Testament. Men and women in the New Testament believe what they saw with their own eyes, that Jesus died and rose again. Countless martyrs, starting from Stephen in Acts 7 and right up through the current time, have had their lives compromised, have, have died, have been tortured because of that belief and spread. We have hundreds, maybe thousands of manuscripts that uphold the validity of the scriptures. So what it comes down to, what it basically comes down to, after saying all of this, is you have to decide if it's true. That's just where you are. You have to decide if it's true. Look, no, no amount of earthly evidence is going to convince you that Jesus walked out of that grave if you don't want to believe it. There's no amount of earthly evidence that will do that. Many saw it happen or had close friends or family members who saw it happen and they chose not to believe. Today we have the same thing. I'll believe if you show me proof. That is exactly the opposite of what God calls us to. Blessed are they who believe. Blessed are they who believe when there is no proof. Who believe no matter what. No sermon, no podcast, no matter how, how well delivered is going to convince you that God came to earth 2,000 years ago to die for us. You have to believe. You have to come to faith through a faith that's enabled by a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit within each one of us. That's what's happened. Our ears have been opened to hear the truth, and we have believed. If you look at Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So today, when we talk about is the Bible true? Uh, is it true that Jesus came to save us? Uh, how, how can I believe that? I, I, it's fantastic and hard to believe, and I can't wrap my mind around it. I pray for you that you'll allow the Holy Spirit to soften your heart to that truth. Today, if you are not a believer, I pray that you will be one. I pray that God will move in your heart to be one. The Word of God is true. God is the God of the universe, and he loved all of us, each one of us, me and you, so much that he sent his son to die. And we are here today by his grace. And I am so thankful for that. Anybody else here thankful for that? Amen, yes. Let's pray.
Lord God, we are a people who find it easy to believe things that are obvious, Lord, and very, very difficult to, to believe the things that, that we read in your word about your heart, your love for us, your sacrifice for us. God, there's all kinds of attacks against your truth, and they're just, they're everywhere. There's ridicule. God, there's so much evidence that what you have done is, is true. We can look at creation, God, and see your hand. It testifies to your existence. Lord, each one of us has given our hearts to you, to, to your son Jesus, to be Lord of our lives. And we know that that act was true. We know that he came to save us. We know that you loved us so much that you left the 99 in the pasture to come and find us. So Lord, help us in our unbelief. Just like the man in scripture said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are weak and our faith falters at times. Help us, God, to be strong. Help us, God, to know that you are the God of the universe, that you are in control, that even though we look around sometimes and we wonder what you're up to, what you're, what you're doing, what, where you are in the midst of our struggle, we know that there's nothing that you can't do. We know that you are in control. We know, Lord God, that, that you have us in the palm of your hand, that you want nothing but the best for us. And Lord, you ask that we trust, so help us. Help us to trust you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.